you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about Marvel Treasury Edition number six, starring Doctor Strange. Two people that, if you listen to their podcast, you know why they're here. Grant Richter and Herman Hello. Lowe from the Into the Weird Podcast. Hi, guys. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on the Astral Realm here to talk about uh, this particular book, which I really love. And we'll get into the stories in a moment. But I want to ask you guys, for those of you out there who don't listen to Into the Weird, and you should be, why don't you guys explain a little what the show's all about? Okay. Uh, Into the Weird, we specifically cover Bronze Age comics uh, from 1970. We're going to go, we're trying to go through about 1985 uh, for Marvel, and we keep it restricted to a certain list of Marvel characters. We touch on supernatural characters. We touch on sci-fi characters. Just stuff that is weird. It's a little trippy. Uh, we talk, we're we going to be talking about Doctor Strange a lot. We just talked about Man-Thing, the first appearance of Man-Thing. We're going to be going into the first appearance of Morbius soon. We're going to talk about Demon Hellstrom, Adam Warlock, uh, the Captain Marvel, uh, the Starlin years, Deathlock. What else we got lined up, Herman? Well, I mean, Skull the Slayer, some obscure titles like that. Oh, um, yeah. You know, Weird World. But Jill Raven. Um, Jill Raven, oh, yeah. We should mention that, you know, in those early uh, days, uh, 1970, 71-ish, you know, uh, the title Weird was often substituted for horror. Right, right. In many cases. But, um, you know, with the relaxation of the comic book code, they couldn't go full-on horror yet unless they wanted to do the magazine format. So, you know, when they were doing the comics, they focused on these weird storylines. And that's basically what inspired, you know, Grant and I to do this podcast because we're both big fans of uh, horror and weirdness. You know, so um, we're not going to go full on horror, though. We're not going to cover all the magazines. We've done one. We've done Savage Tales, number one. But, yeah. you know, we're basically going to focus on the uh, comics only and then, you know, leave the magazines for more horror related podcasts. Yeah. We're, so, we're yeah. trying to focus on the stuff that's kind of the counterculture of Marvel's Bronze Age. Yeah. Just think a lot of Gerber, a lot of Steve yeah. Gerber and a lot of Jim Starlin. A lot of Roy Thomas. <laughs> Engelhart. Roy, oh yeah, oh, oh. Roy Thomas is all oh, over the place. Oh Roy, <laughs> yeah, oh, sometimes to uh, his detriment, <laughs> but yeah. we love him. Yep, he's the best. I was lucky enough to have dinner with Steve Gerber once, and like I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I get it. You know, like I, I kind of get where. <laughs> Whoa, he, he came up with a lot of this crazy stuff. So yeah, it was. Uh, mm. That's amazing. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. No. Oh, what what I wouldn't give to be in your shoes then, Rob. Oh, we're going to talk about Howard the Duck, too. That reminds me. Yeah, we're going to. Oh, yes. Which is going to be a journey for me because I've never read any Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was actually one of my first Treasury editions was the Howard one. So, yeah. That's a uh, that's actually a perfect segue in that I wanted to ask you guys, like, what is what is if you have any 
like history with the treasury format in general, either this book or just any of the treasury editions? Uh, basically, Rob, I'm from South Africa, although now I live in Taipei in, in Taiwan. Um, I'm an expat. But in South Africa, we had corner stores. We had uh, um, supermarkets that sold comics, just like you guys. But it seemed that we were getting surplus material shipped from the States. You know, we had a lot of British comics too, a lot of French comics, the album formats and that kind of thing. But um, since we got the, the comics late, uh, when I started buying comics in 1981, uh, you know, I bought all the, the mid-70s stuff. Uh, so I wasn't current with what was going on in comics uh, in the 80s. I was still reading the 70s. And uh, we also had the spinner racks and so forth. And um, I remember the treasury editions, they were always more expensive, obviously, because they were thicker, they had more content, but not by much. Uh, 10 cents for a normal comic, and then it was about 20 cents for a treasury edition. Wow. So, maybe, yeah, the, maybe double the price. Because, obviously, these things were not in the best of condition because they had been shipped from the States and they had been probably lying boxes uh, for a couple of years. And um, so, you know, they probably marked them down price-wise. But uh, I picked up, uh, I think, by the age of seven, at least, I had four or five treasury editions. I can't remember all of them, but I definitely remember one of them was the, the first Conan and the first Thor, you know, where he has that great battle against Hercules. And uh, I read those things obsessively until they fell apart. So um, now I don't own those originals anymore. I just picked up a, a batch on eBay a couple of years ago. So yeah, Treasury Editions was great. It was like having a graphic novel before there were, or I should say a trade paperback collecting storylines before there were any trade paperbacks. Yep. It was amazing, you know, for, for a kid to suddenly have like uh, three to eight stories sometimes. Or, or not, not that much. That's uh, three to uh, five or six stories, um, you know, in a hundred pages. That was amazing. I thought, well, it's definitely worth, you know, uh, my money <laughs> to pick up a treasury edition every time I could, mm. um, had the chance. Yeah, that's that's my bit of history with the treasury editions. I have none, um, and I have a good reason for it too. They were starting to go out as I was starting to collect comics, and even though my grandpa would get me comics on a regular, pretty regular basis, if I ever brought them home. And if they were ever not sight unseen, they would go in the trash. So I had to have <laughs> comics that I could store somewhere easy. If I could put them in a dresser drawer, I could probably get away with keeping them. If I'd had a treasury edition, it would have been garbage. So just for self-preservation as a child, I did not get treasury editions. <laughs> <laughs> the sad thing is, is like if, you're, if you're of a particular age, you know, like if you were just kind of getting into comics as treasuries were going out, you probably wondered why the format was even beloved because like Marvel at the end was doing – Smurfs and the Annie adaptation, and you're like, what? Like, you know, we're, we're far away. We're a far cry from Spider-Man versus Superman. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were just I think, I had, I, think I had that Superman yeah. versus Shazam one. I don't know if that counts as a treasure edition or not, but I remember it was huge. Yeah. And I, I think I had it for like a week, and it, it was it disappeared. So oh. that was my that was my last attempt. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, whenever you saw a Treasury Edition advertised in one of the other comics and, and I couldn't get my hands on it, I would, like, obsess over that issue. And I would even have dreams about it. Like, you know, when am I going to get it? Every time I ran to the corner store uh, hoping against, you know, um, obviously the odds that it would be there, but it never was. You know, so I had this list of stuff I wanted to pick up when I was older and when I visit, visited the States or something like that, but it never happened. So luckily for eBay, <laughs> eventually it happened like 
you know, 35 years later. But um, yeah, that was the worst of it, you know, not being able to get everything that, that you want. Oh, yeah, the ads that Marvel and DC used mm. to run for their treasuries were really like, oh, they just made the books look so, so special. I just got so, so excited epic. over the, yeah, so you're just like, I had to get these books. So this one in particular, um, they said Marvel Treasury number six, Doctor Strange. It was on sale June 3rd, 1975. The cover is by Frank Brunner, and I have to say, this is probably one of, the cover is like one of the great Doctor Strange images of all time. Like yeah, to me, this, this is what I think of when I think of Doctor Strange is this shot. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I agree. That is, that is really, really cool cover. And Bruner is probably one of my top three all-time favorite Doctor Strange artists. It, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. He's my, definitely my second favorite, right after Gene Cullen. And, you know, Bruno started on covers. So that that's how he first got the Doctor Strange gig. Um, he's not, because he's so detailed and he takes his time, he's not a regular monthly artist, um, you know, uh, at the best of times. But um, because of his cover work um, on the horror comics and so forth, and then eventually on Doctor Strange, they said, hey, do you want it? And, and he took it. And I'm so glad he did, because how many iconic Doctor Strange images have we seen from Frank Bruner alone? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, this cover is classic. I felt so bad to, for whatever happened to Clea in the background, though. She's just <laughs> floating there on some sparkles, and she looks beautiful. But she's like, poor girl, just got knocked out or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. she was always playing the damsel in distress in, in most know. of the issues, and until later on, when she got her own, you know, when she, her magical prowess became a, a little bit more to Doctor Strange's level, you know. But yeah, yeah. that's basically what what she was back then, just a foil for Doctor Strange to rescue. You know, it's or, unfortunate. Yeah, I, I don't like that. But yeah, the early, late 60s, 70s, <laughs> that's what it was about. A couple of years ago when I was working on a fake power record uh, for Doctor Strange, because he never got his own power record, I was like, yeah. I need, I needed a piece of art for the cover, and this is the image I used. I was like, this oh, wow. is what I would want to see on a power record if they ever done one for Doctor Strange. Is, yeah, they never did. Oh, brilliant. That would have been, I, don't, yeah. I don't know why they didn't. I mean, they did power records of everything else. I remember there was like the, that cartoon of Lord of the Rings from the late 70s, early 80s. There was a power record of that. Why wasn't there one of Doctor Strange? It's, just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's too bad. You know, um, the sales figures for Doctor Strange wasn't that great. You know, even throughout, um, you know, the 70s, he, he was one of the characters that everybody wanted to work on, you know, because they could go mad. They could go all psychedelic. They could, um, you know, draw these fantasy landscapes. Um, and also for another reason, the editors weren't always looking closely at Doctor Strange because it wasn't selling so well, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, um, artists felt they had more freedom. Writers felt the same because um, nobody was looking over their sh shoulder all the time because it wasn't one of the, the big sellers. You know, so everybody wanted to have a chance uh, to draw Doctor Strange or to write it. And um, unfortunately, the sales numbers weren't that high. I think it was between 125,000 to 200,000 a month, which... Today would be amazing. <laughs> oh my but god! Back then, it's like, yeah, back then it was like borderline cancellation numbers, you know. So they wanted to sell at least three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand, like the Avengers and stuff like that. So, you know, um, I think that might have factored into the the uh, reason why they didn't eventually go with getting a power record. Or, although I, I should mention that the movie Doctor Strange came out in seventy eight. You know, the right, very first right. Doctor Strange movie. So I, I I don't know if they would have greenlit that. If if the the sales weren't there, but it's a fact, the sales weren't there. I, I I did a bit of research on that, and so I don't know why they eventually said, okay, let's go ahead with the movie. But Frank Brunner was in talks to consult on that movie, and um, you know he did in fact do that. So 
interesting, but I would have loved a power record as well. I remember, I'm old enough to remember watching the Doctor Strange TV movie up in my parents' bedroom because it aired the same <laughs> night as Roots. And my parents, my oh. par- my, oh, which obviously CBS had a lot of faith in it. I watched Roots with my family, but for that night, I'm like, I'm watching Doctor Strange. So they were downstairs watching Roots, and I was upstairs on their bed watching Doctor Strange. I, I have a soft spot for that movie. That's awesome. <laughs> it's great that you can attach a memory like that to it. No, no, I won't be able to do that, but wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny you mentioned sales figures because th- that is the surprising thing is that there even is a Doctor Strange Treasury Edition. If you look at the books that came before this in the run, it's Marvel Treasury Editions devoted to Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Conan, Thor, uh, the Hulk. I mean, they're yeah. big. they're big marquee characters. This is the first one where... I feel like they took a little bit of a chance. Like, okay, this, you know, Doctor Strange is kind of one of our B-level characters uh, in terms of sales, of course. I don't think in terms yeah. of quality. I, I think of him as, you know, one of the, the pantheon. But nevertheless, yeah. um, I, I'm, and I really appreciate that they went all out because I think, and we're going to get to it in a moment, like, this is a really solid collection for a untutored Doctor Strange fan. Like, if you want to yeah. introduce somebody to the character, this is a great bunch of stories because it gives you such a diverse run of the creators that worked on it. Well, I think that was a timing issue, too, because this came out about a year after the the, the long-running Doctor Strange series when the Englehart and Bruner started. So right, it, it right. might have been a way just to you know garner you know awareness of the character to maybe get sales of that book up. Yeah, mm. maybe so. Yeah, it's I agree. It's terrific. It's terrific. Um, so, so the inside cover is uh, drawn by Marie Severin, the great Marie Severin. It's a black and white piece, and it's the table of contents. And we see there's like eight stories here, which is amazing. And it says, quite possibly, the most daring of Doctor Strange doings ever squeezed between two four-color covers. <laughs> which, you know, a little bit of Marvel hyperbole, of course, because, hey, you know, this was probably the first Doctor Strange comic book that didn't have ads in it. So, of course, there would yeah. be two full-color covers. Uh, otherwise, it was grit on the back, uh, back cover of uh, these Ooh. other Doctor Strange comics. Um, the first story is The End at Last uh, from uh, by Denny O'Neill and Steve Ditko from Strange Tales, uh, number 146. Uh, Furious of dealing with constant defeat against Doctor Strange, Dormammu begins his most ambitious plot yet, defeating eternity. Traveling to eternity's realm, he traps the entity in a mystic barrier before it can awaken. Doctor Strange is then transported from Earth to eternity's realm to witness Dormammu's moment of triumph. However, Doctor Strange manages to free eternity. Traveling to the Dark Dimension, Strange is met there by the Ancient One, who informs him that with Dormammu gone, Strange has the power to reverse any of Dormammu's spells. Strange then uses his powers to free those banished by Dormammu, including Clea and even Baron Mordo. So guys, what do we think of this story? Weird. You know, it's, it's a weird yeah. story. Um, because we all know you know what the modern interpretation of Dormammu is. He's like this godlike, you know. You know, you've seen the movie. He's the the big flaming head. You yeah, know, in, in later like, conqueror. Hmm. Yeah, even in the later seventies, he's insanely powerful. And here he's powerful, but he's just a guy running around in like a green bodysuit with yellow trunks, and it's just weird. <laughs> and and then Eternity is so much less powerful. Than what we think of as Eternity, like in in the '90s, I remember when the uh, the sec- like the sequel to Infinity Gauntlet came out, and Infinity gets ba- or Eternity gets bound in that, and that was like a huge epic deal that you had to have like an eight issue miniseries for. And here it's just like, oh yeah, I, j- I just bound the embodiment in the universe, no big, you know, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I think well, this was the last Ditko issue of this of Strange Tales, too, if I'm not mistaken, because I think that Bill Everett took over right after this. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, but, but you know, that is where I think Ditko, uh, he, he went out guns firing and he just gave us amazing art. If you look at page seven and eight alone, you've got these single-page spreads of uh, Eternity and then Dormammu and Eternity clashing, and you've got these... Uh, cosmic images of these celestial spheres like smashing into each other and 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 Dormammu right at the center and I think that Ditko really went out with a bang you know he said like okay this is my final issue uh, probably you know arguably Ditko's favorite character because you know um, he had uh, a hand in uh, obviously a lot of uh, input into creating Spider-Man but I think and many people in the industry suspect this that with Doctor Strange, it was more than just 50-50. It could even have been, you know, um, all Ditko. Because yeah, if you think, think about so. it, th this Doctor Strange and the sensibilities he deals with, and uh, it's all what Ditko was about at that time. And um, so I think he went out with a bang here. And that's that's what I like about this particular story the most, is the art by Ditko. Yeah, Dormammu is a silly little... A weird-looking character with these, you know, with this flaming head. Uh, I wonder what Shag would say if we <laughs> he's hot. the precursor of Firestorm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he would probably wouldn't be happy with that. But um, you know, I I don't mind Dormammu's design, um, although Ditko, Ditko didn't draw him, you know, the best. Uh, a later artist would would uh, you know improve on his look, but I love the way Ditko drew Ditko drew Eternity and you know just this this cosmic clash. So no, this this comic's good. It's just a little bit. It's it, it's a short story that that gives you everything you need to know about uh, Doctor Strange dealing with these otherworldly entities, and um, I think it serves its purpose in this Treasury edition alone. You know, just just on the fact that okay, you're, there's little kids reading it and they want to see this battle between these these uh, monstrous entities, and they get their money's worth. I think. And it's in it's that interesting respect. that this isn't the first. This isn't Clea's first appearance, but this is the first time she actually gets a name. Because up until oh, then, yeah. she was just that white-haired girl from Dormammu's dimension. Yeah, oh, she really? Never oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, we commented on that in, in uh, our recent podcast. So right? much Brand respect for the like... ladies back then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess they just forgot to, to come up with a name for her. It could be, or it could be like, okay, we just need this this. Yeah, extra I think it's supposed to be like an on-running mystery, but yeah, I just think it's 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 interesting. Yeah. But they free Mordo, so you know that's going to lead into future Mordo stories. And, um, yeah. you know, at this point in time, I had forgotten that Mordo was even trapped in another dimension. I knew he was trapped somewhere, but um, I didn't know it was anything to do with the Dark Dimension. So if you defeat Dormammu, you it was, can really... It was a holdover from that long-running arc that we talked about on Into the Weird, where it's, you know, Dormammu and Mordo send all these goons after Doctor Strange, who look like yeah. circus acrobats. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then Doctor Strange... It, defeats Mormammu with magical crab claws and judo. And yeah. that, Mormammu is very <laughs> mad at Mordo and butts yeah. him into a pocket dimension. Oh, man, that's great. That was a, that was a great issue, too. <laughs> I love, yeah, I, I yeah, love so the magical love crab the claws. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned uh, pages 7 and 8, and, you know, I mean, I've, I've done enough research on the treasuries, and I've been lucky enough to speak to some people that actually worked on them to know that a lot of the reason certain stories were put in books was just page count. You know, there was no, it was a pretty mundane reason. It was like, we need yeah. a 16 page thing or in 15 and we can do a pinup. Do we have the money for a pinup or whatever? That said, mm -hmm. I have to think that this story was at least partly picked for those two pages that you mentioned, Herman, seven and eight, yeah. because Ditko just really lets it rip. I mean, I think eternity 
is one of the great character designs of all time. I mean, they get just yeah. such a beautiful character, and it's Ditko at his most Ditkoist, you know, Ditkoness. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, he just feels like this is a character you would have seen on a, like a Yes album cover from around that time or something <laughs> like that. It's just oh, it, and, that's a good analogy, and, and it fits so perfectly in the Treasury format to have two full-page illustrations back to back. I mean, it really just takes advantage of the format. Yeah. you know, yeah. it's just great. Yeah, exactly, I'm, I'm yeah. reading this from scans of Herman's copy, and I'm jealous that I'm not seeing the full size of these of these pages. Yeah, um, yeah. Unfortunately, my copy hasn't uh, seen you know. Well, it, it's seen better days. It's it's in uh, you know terrible shape. I should probably try to pick up another one. But um, you know, uh, it's still even though it's so old and and the colors are faded, it still looks great. If I compare it to the digital edition. Which, which has the remastered color and stuff. I prefer this old edition. What do you think, Grant? And, yeah, and, and I Rob, really you're, do. you're obviously reading from, yeah, from the I'll, original. I'll get to too. that when we get into the to the Bill Everett and Marie Severin so issues. But I, yeah. I think I, just even looking at a scan of the original copy looks so much better than the digitally remastered stuff that's on Marvel yeah. Unlimited and Comixology and all that. I agree. And well, it let's... smells so good, too. I'm telling yeah, you right now. <laughs> and newsprint comics smell the best. If they made oh, a cologne of that, I'd wear it. Well, all right. Speaking of uh, Bill Everett, let's get right to it. The next story is The Origin of the Ancient One by Denny O'Neill and Bill Everett from Strange Tales 148, just two issues later. Uh, five centuries ago, in the Himalayan land of Kamar Tai, uh, the Ancient One, whose real name is never given, and the mystical being known as Kalu, grew up together and studied magic. They cast a spell of prosperity on their village. Kalu wants to use his power to serve his own ego, so he hypnotized the other villagers. They crowned him king and followed him in an attack on a neighboring village. The watchful ancient one finally spoke out, warning that the prosperity spell would be broken by this hostile act. Kalu put him in stasis and forced him to witness the battle, the looting, and the enslavement of the other village. The ancient one's prediction came true, and a plague struck the village. Kalu fled into another dimension, breaking the stasis spell. Back in the present, Strange learns that Dormammu's attack on Eternity loosened the boundaries of the multiverse, so Kalu has escaped. Finishing his tale, the Ancient One warns his disciple to brace himself as he senses that Kalu is about to attack. Talk about a change of art style. Holy jeez. Yeah, Yeah, this is (laughs) jarring. We were not charitable about this on our show. (laughs) No, no. no, Look, I love Bill Everett. I love his Submariner stuff. Um... But I don't think he was the right fit for Doctor Strange. Um, I think if they brought him on just for this issue, it would have been really cool because I like and I acknowledge that Kalu's appearance is, you know, and I've touched on this on our show, they did a lot of Asian racial stereotypes back then. And I yeah. think that's what Kalu's supposed to be. Um, but he still looks neat, especially um, mm. in his flashback days and then in the modern time where he looks, where he's got like that red and and black and white armor. He kind of looks like Ming the Merciless. I I am I like this a lot better in the original format than I do, like I said, digitally remastered. It looks cool, but it yeah. doesn't look. It's not as good as Ditko, but it's still cool. He also looks yeah. like Submariner. He does <laughs> yeah, look like exactly. Submariner. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at page fifteen, you you see uh, two panels of Kalu and the Ancient One facing each other, kind of, and um, basically it could be a bald Submariner and. Um, an older looking Submariner with a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> his but, eyebrows are yeah. amazing on oh, Kalu. And I've got a, I've got a lot of affection for Kalu as a character because he's a in the Strange Tales Volume Two that came out in the late '80s. He's a major supporting character in that run, which you know, started out really strong and ended kind of weird, but you know, still a, a really good run. I like Kalu a lot as a character. 
Yeah. No, uh, I mean, any contemporary of the ancient one would be a force to be reckoned with, especially since they sort of hint at the fact that Kalu is actually more powerful mm -hmm. than the ancient one, um, if only for the fact that he's more aggressive and more willing to, you know, he doesn't care about the consequences uh, when he uses his powers, which we'll see, you know, as the story progresses and um, what you talked about, Rob, when he, you know, invades uh, other villages and tries to conquer the world, essentially. You know, he doesn't care what he leaves behind, whereas the ancient one is more careful. You know, he handles everything with kid gloves and... Um, so uh, technically, Kalu, you know, when he's back on Earth uh, in the storyline following this, it's almost like hell on Earth, you know, uh, but they managed to beat him. And that's the only thing that, that bugs me about the Treasury editions is because, OK, if you're a kid reading this for the first time, it wouldn't really matter. It will sort of make you seek out the issues that you're missing. But for me, um, reading this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I found that a little bit you know, uh, jarring because they, they end with the story with a caption saying, okay, uh, of course, Dr. Strange and the ancient one were victorious. <laughs> they did beat Kalu. And that's basically all we get from Kalu at the very end. You know, we never really see the confrontation, but like you said, page count and all of that, they just wanted to introduce the ancient one. I think the focus of this story is just his origin and not so much the, the focus on Kalu. I have to say, I really like the, the panel on page 22 where the ancient one in the flashback is being released from a stasis. And then he's like kind of coming out of that double image of himself. And there's that corona of energy around him. You can always kind of almost like hear the sound effect. like. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I am a 44-year-old man making sound effects. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> is, isn't it cool that, the, that Kalu can uh, empower weapons and armor and his soldiers to become invincible? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, Doctor Strange could essentially do that for everyone in the Marvel Universe if they're fighting a big bad. <laughs> like, well, that hey, Thanos. New, that's one of the things I like about Kalu is that when they introduced Doctor Strange, he was the master of black magic, and they just were just kind of throwing terms around. And they actually codified what black magic was later with Kalu, where he uses a magic that drains the life force of other living things to cast his spells. And that's what black magic is in the Marvel Universe. So I'm, that's, again, that's one of the reasons I like Kalu. I think he's, he's an interesting addition to the mythos. Yeah. No, I agree. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great character, a great villain that they could um, use again in the future. Hopefully, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> the relationship between the Ancient One and, and Kalu reminds me a lot of what they would do with Professor X and Magneto later on, like in the movies and stuff, where like these were guys that came up together and were sort of best friends, and one went one way and one went the other. And one was yeah, bald. There you go. Visually similar. Yeah, they're yeah. visually similar as well. I mean, Kalu even sports this giant red cape. Yeah, and the funky <laughs> helmet. And good, good. Yeah, and good call Rob. Yeah, Thank even you. though Doc, yeah, um, the ancient one never lost the use of his legs. He did use the loose the the use of his entire body when he was placed <laughs> in stasis. So yeah, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, spe speaking of which, before we end this show, I have a theory on how uh, the Doctor, the second Doctor Strange movie should approach the ancient one, and I want to run it by you guys, but we'll do it before okay. at the end of the show, so hold me sure. to that. So, okay, okay. Uh, well, the next, the third story is the end of the ancient one. So, okay, we've got the origin, now i got the end, because uh, he'll never appear again after this, uh, by Stanley, Marie Severin, <laughs> and Herb Trimpey. What? Stanley wouldn't lie. It's the end of the ancient no. one. From Strange Tales... <laughs> 157. Uh, to defeat Umar, Doctor Strange frees Zom, who has trapped him and the Ancient One in the Seven Bands of Sutorak. 
Oh, I love these in terms. The Ancient One sacrifices himself to pass his powers on to Strange. While merging with a stone pillar, he warns of the coming of something big. Zom traps Strange in another spell, but is dissolved by the coming of the Living Tribunal. Because of Strange, Earth's mystics now have a sense of evil, so their world must be destroyed. All right, now, my first instinct when looking at this story is if, if Eternity's design is one of the great all-time designs in terms of its sleekness and its beauty, what the holy hell was Marie Severin smoking when she designed Zom? This is nightmare fuel, this character. I, yeah, this is the I, I one hate, of the worst I this, I hate this story. I hate this story yeah. so much. Yeah, well, this story doesn't really make any sense because if you think about it, Rob, just before this story started, um, they they had to deal with Dormammu's sister Umar, right? She she escaped the dark dimension. She was roaming free on Earth, destroying anything, everything she can find. The only way that they could beat her is to release one of the most evil and destructive forces of magic ever, and this is Zom that we're talking about here. So, Doctor Strange, you know, decided to combat Umar by releasing something that was more powerful than Umar, but also more essentially more evil. So he's basically, you know, eating his just desserts here because this is just bad <laughs> for a guy I'm who's supposed so to be mad yeah. that they went with a story about Zom instead of one of the stories about Umar. I love Umar. Yeah. I she have, fled. A, I have, a, fled I have the... a type, um, but yeah, I like Umar. Uh, and I hate Zom. <laughs> and I hate the fact that Doctor Strange kind of sort of defeats Zom by using a karate chop to cut off Zom's forelock. Top knot. It's yeah, just forelock. Stupid. <laughs> but, okay, cool thing about Zom, though, um, and I'm sure you guys probably know this, and I'm sure the listeners know this, but in World War Hulk, when Doctor Strange confronts the Hulk, he actually uh, summons and channels Zom to fight the Hulk, and he actually oh fights the Hulk God. in a standstill. Yeah, that, I thought they made that up. They're like, okay, this is a new character they've made up for this issue. Nope, there's Zom. Yeah, he's right here. With those well, chest I mean, hair, for, his giant for, tick head. And yeah. Tick head. No, excuse me. It's head. crazy. Yeah, it looks like a giant tick with hair. Basically, um, I think uh, we should uh, describe him a little bit more for people who might not have the Treasure Edition in front of them. He, he's got he's this giant um, hirsute-looking bear kind of guy, but then he's got a human, well, in terms of skin at least, human skin all over his face, but his face is ridiculously malformed. He kind of makes me think of of uh, one of the mutants that you'd see on uh, that the Schwarzenegger movie Total Recall on Mars, <laughs> you know, because of bad radiation or whatever. He was completely deformed. And um, he's got this top knot, which you mentioned, Grant, which turns out to be his Achilles heel. And then he's it makes got fire his... shoot out of his head when you cut his hair off. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, there's another flame-haired uh, <laughs> reference. Anyway, but then he's wearing these purple, uh, you know, undies, which is really, really weird. And this kind of, um, I don't know what you would call it, but it's its sort of like a double sesh. It's kind of like know, a dude bro workout shirt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the funniest thing, though, must be his hands. He doesn't really have hands, per se. It's just these two... Yeah, these metal-like um, hands uh, trailing fire, and it's got these, I think, spikes or claws coming out of it. Kind of like maces or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah like they're mace. Mace yeah. hands. They remind me of like 
the crappy figures that came out toward the end of the Masters of the Universe line. Because, like, <laughs> we've run out of ideas. Let's slap some body parts together and sell it to eight-year-olds. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. It's like, this looks like the, the action figure you make when you have loose pieces from all your broken action <laughs> figures. And you smoosh them together because none of them, none of the pieces fit with any of the other ones. <laughs> so bad. Exactly. Oh. And you use your dad's lighter or something to melt the face yeah. a little. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What it's do you really guys think garbage. about Marie's interpretation of the Living Tribunal? Uh, no, I don't mind. I, I like that. Well, what about you, Rob? I thought that was quite visually arresting, very angular, very sharp-edged, totally the opposite of, of this malformed Zom. But but I didn't mind that at all. I, I kind of thought she did that well, you know? Oh, it reminded me of I'm, a, I'm a fan of her work. I think it's I think I mean if you can get aside the sheer hideousness of Zom, uh, I think this is a really handsome story and I like that that full page shot of the Living Tribunal is again it's terrific. It reminds me of the Eternity shot. You're just like the enormity of this character deserves a all page all by himself. It kinda of reminds yeah. me of more like nineteen fifty sci fi <laughs> too, where they're just I don't know, just it's Looks so much more alien than what I normally think of as a little eternity, but it is, yeah, it's really cool. Um, uh, before we uh, conclude this issue, I just want to uh, ask you guys: What did you think about tw- page twenty-nine? That's where uh, Zom sort of smashes his hands together, Hulk-like, and creates Boom. a shockwave. I really dig that page. I don't know why. You know, artistically, you've still got Zom in the center, and he's it looks like his arm like hair is on but, fire. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like his fire is spreading a bit. But it's such a great page, and you've got Doctor Strange in the panel above brandishing the top knot that he just severed. <laughs> I think if they led with the top of his head being on fire, it would have worked a lot better than his goofy top knot. Mm, yeah, it could have. Like, so you, you had to put out the flame rather than <laughs> you know, karate chop it off. <laughs> but, you know, the know. battleground is Stonehenge. You know, we should mention that. That's also kind of interesting. God, and, I, even, and I this, didn't even notice that. I yeah, this that plays in into an important uh, bit that we should mention about this issue, though, because this is the first time, as you mentioned in the synopsis, Rob, where the Ancient One dies. This is technically his first death. And um, because of his death, Doctor Strange was bequeathed with all of his power. So theoretically, he's, you know, uh, amped up now so that he can face the living tribunal. And which he does, in fact, he wins uh, against all odds. He does win, uh, but um, they don't show that in this issue, though. But I thought that was interesting. The fact that here they make mention of passing along the powers once you know the the ancient one dies, the disciple gets everything, um, which makes you wonder what happened later on. <laughs> what was he depowered again? When we find out what happened later, you know, in uh, in subsequent stories, because the ancient one turned out not to be as dead as we thought. Your your mentioning of Stonehenge makes me think of like what was it like if you're like on a family vacation to Stonehenge and this is what's happening when you get there? You're like, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, that'll be oh, cool. Doctor Strange will probably it, we you probably have witnessed it, Rob. But you know, after the fight, Doctor Strange probably used a spell to mind wipe everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's it. You know, I I have a whole year missing. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I dig it, and I, I have to mention when when you do when he does the uh, the thunderclap, um, Doctor Strange has a uh, thought balloon, a mystic thunderclap, causing me to drop the forelock. Those words have never been put in that order before, and will never be again. <laughs> At least it's not foreskin. That would have made a much. Uh, 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 
But you know, I I had a funny when I was reading this comic book, uh, this this particular issue. Uh, it was late at night a couple of days ago, and um, you know, my vision was all blurred and stuff. And on the very first page, they say, you know, um, produced by the masters of Mythopia. And you know, I read that as myopia. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, because my eyes were blurred and, you know, funnily enough, myopia. And then, you know, um, uh, by their amulets, ye shall know them. And I kept reading all of these words wrong. You know, it happens when you're reading late at night. So when I actually did read this panel, I did read, I kept reading foreskin all the time. I was like, what? Uh, because that forelock, it's a word I've never heard. You know, top notch, sure. You know, forelock, I don't know. Got your foreskin. Uh, okay. It's a weird, weird word, but, you know, obviously this was used in the 70s, so... <laughs> don't think the comics code relaxed that much. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, well, uh, we're going to move on, thank God. Uh, so the next story is uh, To Dream Perchance to Die by Roy Thomas and Dan Adkins from Doctor Strange number 170. Some of you may be wondering, how did we get to Doctor Strange number 170? We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Doctor Strange hears the Ancient One cry out in his sleep. That's weird. I thought he died. He's in some sort of coma. Hamir, the Ancient One's manservant, heard him say, Nightmare. An arousal spell fails, so Strange tries to enter his dreaming mind. Before he can complete his preparations, he is pulled forcibly into the Ancient One's nightmare. Hamir drops his disguise. He is really Nightmare, and he follows Strange. Nightmare's spell forces Strange to revert from astral form to physical. His steed attacks, but Strange drives it off with the light of his all-seeing eye. Nightmare's third spell brings Hamir forth as a hostage, but the eye reveals it as an illusion. Frustrated, Nightmare returns to the waking world to kill the Ancient One physically. Strange's cloak restrains him, and he flees to his own dimension. The Ancient One finally awakens. He confesses that he deliberately set a trap for Nightmare, using himself as bait so that Strange would defeat him and regain his confidence. All right, guys. What about this one? Okay, um, Grant. I'll let you head off with that one, with this one. I know you've got a lot to say about this issue. <laughs> I I don't understand this issue. Uh, I don't understand. Okay, and this is a, a nerd fanboy thing. It's 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 splitting hairs. It bothers me that Nightmare can manifest on the physical plane in this issue. It doesn't happen anytime before. I don't think it happens anytime <laughs> after, and it drives me absolutely insane. Other than that, I thought it was a really good issue. I, I like Dan Atkins art. Um, you know, pretty decent story. I like how he, you know, tried to emulate Ditko's backgrounds, especially on page forty-three. I think all the little squigglies in the background, where everything looks like it's made out of, you know, psychedelic net, is cool. But that one thing just really, really bothers me. Yeah, don't mess with Nightmare. He's one of Grant's uh, all-time favorite villains. Yeah. So yeah, one, one of the starts... few villains that actually gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. You could draw Nightmare. So uh, frightening, but here he, uh, Dan Adkins doesn't. Uh, Nightmare doesn't look scary at all, yeah. for me at least. He just looks like a regular looks dude, like a dude with weird clothes, yeah, riding a horse. But yeah, you know, Ditko, the very first time he drew Nightmare, he made him suitably disturbing yeah, and um, you know, yeah, shadowy. And all subsequent artists, I think, except for Adkins, I mean, this was a, a visual uh, interpretation of Nightmare that didn't go over well with me at least. Uh, but, you know, story-wise, I think they wanted to feature Nightmare because he's one of Doctor Strange's, you know, big bads. Right. Um, so they did do that. They showed a bit of the Nightmare Dimension. But, you know, when I think of the Nightmare Dimension, I think of those weird Ditko-esque globs that hang in, in space and, and these monstrous entities lurking in the background. They had nothing of that here. They just had some backgrounds, like you said, with these wavy lines, Grant. Um, again, I, I think Atkins, you know, he did a, a passable job. He just... 
it could have made it a little bit more scary. I mean, if you feature a character like Nightmare in a story, give us some horror, you know, give us some some scares, and he didn't do that at all. Yeah, I, I, I like Atkins' art in general, but I don't think the supernatural is necessary. His purview, uh, and it shows a little bit later in this run where he introduces uh, the scientist supreme, whose name I can't remember off the top Yandroth? of my head. Yandroth. Yandroth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yandroth. <laughs> and, it, like, he does everything a lot sleeker, and it's, you know, magic versus science, and that comes across a lot stronger, but it just doesn't. Nightmare doesn't have that sense of menace that I enjoy about him. Sal Buscema does the, the best nightmare of all time. But oh, yeah, there, true. There, there's a couple panels in this I thought were really funny. On page 38, um, where Strange is giving himself a face palm. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> my, my spells are avail me not. And, <laughs> and then on page 40, and I know what it's supposed to be. I know it's Steve kneeling down and we're seeing the top of his head. But the way it looks, it looks like there's a black hole in his neck and there's something shooting out of his neck. <laughs> it doesn't look like the top of his head and his hair. It's like, oh, there's a void where Steve's head used to be. But yeah. okay. And my uh, a bit of uh, you know interesting uh, captioning here by Roy Thomas, who was the editor and the writer. Oh, Stanley was the editor. Sorry, Roy was the writer. But Roy had a, a editor's caption here on the very first page that says, uh, you know, with the ancient one who has recovered from his death shown in the previous issue. And then he goes, he says, sheesh, how lucky can a guy be? And later on, he uses sheesh again. You know, and with that that's, that, that um, uh, utterance, I normally associate with Firestorm. You know, he, he always says sheesh all, over and over again. So Conway probably took some, you know, um, uh, cue from Roy's writing here early on. But um, you, the ancient one, you know, he came back because he wasn't really dead at all. He just made, you know, a Zom think he was dead. So, uh, and Doctor Strange too. So, so technically, he didn't really die. Am I correct in in remembering it that way, Grant? Yeah, uh, yeah. He w- he was just you know super super weak in a coma or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Encased in Stonehenge. So, yeah. yeah. Roy did a passable job of saying, "Hey, why is he back?" But still, you know, for me reading this again, I'm like, "Whoa!" They skipped over a, a massive storyline here just to feature Nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that being but, said, though, I'm glad the, they did the two-page spread. I guess it's 44 and 45 Nightmare on His Horse. That does look that does look pretty rad. Yeah, that looks that. good. Yeah. Unicorn, yeah. Yeah, that horse is pretty cool. That's the that's the thing I liked about Nightmare, the fact that he literally rides a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about a horse, yeah, it's probably a female. So, uh, plus, you know, apparently that horn is deadly. Uh, you know, he says he's going to, like, you know, impale Doctor Strange, and that'll be the end of him, even though it's his astral form. That's so, a cool-looking horse. It's a very cool-looking horse. But I've got a seven-year-old girl. If I could get her in there some that, those kind of unicorns, you know, my life would be set. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think uh, Nightmare would employ a bit of uh, better strategy here? Because, as it turns out, it's a foolproof plan until Strange activates the amulet of Agamotto. You know, so at least Dormammu, in a, in a previous story, he sort of tried to take Eternity off the board because he knew that was Doctor Strange's, you know, um, ace in the hole. But Nightmare, he just keeps on falling for this amulet of Akamoto. You know, it's basically what gets Doctor Strange out of the Nightmare dimension most of the time. Yeah, the amulet yeah. of Atomogo is kind of like the Thundercats hoe of the 60s. You know, I've got a problem. And uh, yeah. I'm gonna form Voltron, and then I'm gonna say Thundercats ho, and then uh, everything will be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes you wonder why Doctor Strange didn't use it more in the newest, uh, you know, Avengers movie. <laughs> he had the opportunity, but he didn't really use it. But we'll find out why. Yeah. 
Yes, we will. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, next next up is Face to Face with the Magic of Baron Mordo by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko from Strange Tales 111. Uh, Mordo visits the Ancient One's home in the astral form and compels the servant to put a drug in his food. Baron Mordo attempts to wring mystic secrets, mystic secrets from him by threatening to let the poison kill him gradually. In battle, Strange uses his amulet to transfer energy from himself to the Ancient One, thus weakening himself. He bluffs Mordo by telling him he can keep Mordo's astral self from reuniting with his physical body. Mordo flees to his body and loses control over the servant. Strange follows and tells Mordo that his plot has failed. The, the, first of all, it's interesting. I, I find that they jump backwards in time. That we're back to yeah, that was Steve weird. era. Um, and the thing, and I'm guessing they did this because they wanted to get Baron Mordo in there. But it, I find it very interesting that after all these other stories that feature scenes or pages that sort of take advantage of the treasury format, this one is so rigidly the nine-panel grid that Ditko chose to work in. It's, I don't. It's an interesting change-up that that Ditko sort of limited himself to this very, very tiny set of panels to tell the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it is weird that they jump around like that. It's, it, it, it strikes me odd that they didn't start with Dr. Strange's first appearance in this to begin with. Um, but, and like you said, it, it doesn't really take advantage of the format, but God, this is a cool looking issue. Yes, it is. Except Mordo yeah. looks like a huge dork, but man, <laughs> Steve, Steve looks amazing. I love, before they gave Steve a cape, and you know, I hated that that old school blue cape he wore before he got the cloak of levitation. But man, when he just had his his jammies and that thing that was kind of the the proto eye of Agamotto, and he went astral all the time, he looked awesome. Like the bottom yeah. of page fifty six, it's got his face, and when he's in his astral form, and he's got his eyebrows, and he just looks great. His heavy yeah. eyelids. Yeah, it's uh, even now, you know, in in modern Doctor Strange comics, when he ditches the cape, I like the visual look of him just you know fighting without the cape. And you know when Doctor Strange get, gets rid of the cape, then shit's going to get real. Because um, it's, it's kind of like Superman, you know, the Bronze Age Superman. When he ditches his cape, then you know that that cape's going to serve some kind of function. Either going to slingshot someone into space or... <laughs> it, it's know, his girl that, hold my earrings moment. <laughs> but, you know, um, in terms of uh, Ditko, yeah, no, um, he really shines here. And I don't mind the use of the nine-panel grid. I think it's because... You know, being in Strange Tales at the time, you know, um, with Nick Fury, the other feature, um, the, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. comic being the other feature, I think uh, they were kind of, you know, they had to make use of uh, the space they had to tell a story. And I think the story was um, a little bit longer than uh, than Ditko would have liked. So he possibly had to compress it into some smaller panels just to tell the tale, because this one does have a lot of. Um, uh, info and events happening, you know, compared to previous uh, Strange Tales stories. So I, I guess that's the reason he could have used it to fit more in, more story in. Um, but it might just be, you know, because he was experimenting at the time, and 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 uh, so I'm, I don't know the real reason for it. But you know, I'm glad he did because we get a lot of Ditko art every single page. You know, you know, you get almost uh, nine or more panels. Like if you look at page 56, there's actually 10 panels. Yeah, he and, squeezes uh, another one in there. <laughs> yeah, I squeezed one in. And you must think maybe it could have been because of Stan, you know, having an extra bit of dialogue that he didn't want to get rid of or um, <clears throat> a bit of narration. I don't know what, what could have prompted that, but it works. You know, he makes it work. And that's a sign of a great master when you have have to make do. Um, and he did that. And I, I love the way he drew, drew Mordo. Uh, Mordo's in most of the panels in this issue, almost more than Strange. And he looks like a Bond villain. 
You know, yeah. for me, a magical Bond villain smoking Especially this with uh, the, the cigarette thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love, I mean, think about it. All of these early strange villains, they're all from Ditko, yeah. all from his imagination. So, uh, man, this guy was great uh, with character design, especially. So, yeah. no, I, any, any Ditko issue. Yeah, I love Doctor Strange's costume, and I, anytime I'm at a convention, if I see somebody cosplaying as Doctor Strange, I ask to take a picture because I just, I just, I think the Doctor Strange costume is one of the great Marvel designs. I like Absolutely. the cape, but I also love that little last panel of this story of him just standing there with all like the mystical smoke just kind of shooting out, yeah. and he's like the mystic arts of black magic. <laughs> it's such a tiny little like postage stamp size panel, but. I love it. I'm just standing there in that little circle. It's beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's awesome. No. Every single panel here. I can't find fault with anything Ditko yeah. did on his run in Doctor Strange. So Very great nice. issue, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so following the story is our kind of lone bonus feature, which is a pinup. A pinup by Frank Brunner. Oh, and, so uh, man, good. it is beautiful. I mean, I still say the cover is, to me, has the edge on this image. But the thing that I like about this one is that Clea is part of the image. She's not lying there prostrate like she is on the cover. Here she's yeah. part of the Doctor Strange world. And, like, this is just gorgeous. It's just simply beautiful. I love that yeah, the I'll... eye is open and yeah. with the yellow on the, on the hem of his cape and the way the collar surrounds his face is... It's just, it's an amazing image. Yeah, and Brunner drew the best Ancient One for me. I mean, he gave so much yeah. detail to the Ancient One's face, this emaciated old, you know, uh, monkish figure. And uh, he definitely drew uh, the Ancient One better than anybody I can think of. Even Ditko. Though Ditko defined the, the look. He didn't, you know, uh, Brunner didn't go for that sl uh, very slant-eyed look, if you know what I mean. Right. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to... Uh, you know, sound terrible here, but you know he did draw the ancient one essentially without eyes, uh, you know, focusing on that Asian yeah. stereotype that Grant and I don't don't like all the time. But you know that was of its time. But here, I mean, Brunner really puts some soul into the ancient one. We'll see in the the issue we're going to discuss just now. Um, you know, he's he's great at drawing him. Yeah. So beautiful. wonderful image. Yeah, I, that would make it would have been a great T-shirt to put up in in your college dorm in 1973 or whatever. You know. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> and for a guy in his mid forties, Steve has gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mister um, Fantastic, eat your heart out, <laughs> Doctor Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, the next story is uh, the Cult and the Curse by Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, and Tom Palmer from Doctor Strange number one seventy seven. The sons of Satanish have taken Doctor Strange's cloak and amulet and exiled him and Clea to a hostile dimension. A protoplasmic shape captures Clea, who cannot cast spells. Strange pursues it after escaping one himself. Back in the alien dimension, Strange frees Clea from the shape. During a brief rest, we find that he cast invisibility on his amulet and transferred much of his power into the cloak, expecting he would lose the first encounter with the cult. He let the cultists take illusory doubles of both items. Uh, vines then attack him and envelop Strange. He sends his amulet to retrieve his cloak, which he left in a graveyard on Earth. With his full powers, he tries to return to Earth, but is prevented by the fact that Asmodeus 
now has his form. He therefore changes his form into a bald blue figure. Oh, here it comes. And hastens to the ancient one's retreat. He then duels with Asmodeus, whose heart fails. Strange removes his mask and finds Dr. Benton, a formal colleague. He has arrived a moment too late, though, for Benton has already summoned Emer and Surtur. So, guys, this is like a... When I'm old enough to bought comics pre-comic store, so if you missed an issue, you just missed it. And I would occasionally see images of this version of Doctor Strange, and I never could figure out what the hell I was looking at. I'm like... What? Who so is this? Why, why is this going on? So why not for for the for people listening that aren't like Doctor Strange Uber fans, explain what is this version of Doctor Strange with the mask? Okay, this isn't okay. First, it's not a mask. This is what Steve actually transforms himself into. That's his actual face in this form, and I think it's supposed yeah. to be an illusion that he casts on himself. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's like if you take his shirt. And you make it skin tight spandex, and then his his you know pants are pretty much the same. Only he's got a pair of trunks, and now he's got a pair of boots, and now he has a pair of like gloves that have kind of that Captain America effect up near the elbows where they flare out to the side, and then it's just that featureless blue face, and then he's got the cape and the and the eye of Agamotto, and he looks like a and I've said this on the show, he looks like one of those bad uh, He Man figures that came out for the like the Warlord line by Remco. It's just badly proportioned. It looks, and I've seen it drawn really well. I've, I've seen yeah. it done in the mid-2000s when this version of Doctor Strange got pulled out of time. It looked really cool there. It looks really cool later in an, in an issue of Namor. Here, it just it looks bad here. It looks really, really bad. Yeah, this was not one of Colin's best uh, you know, images. But um, I think we should explain a little bit more about the origins of this uh, mask as well. Um, uh, I think, Grant, recently we did the research on this, didn't we? Roy Thomas was instructed by Stan Lee to do something to boost something. the sales. Yeah. Do something visually. Even though visually wasn't the real problem, he thought it was. You know, make make him more uh, cool-looking for kids or, or for readers. I so, think they were trying to make him more accessible to superhero fans. Yeah, yeah, by giving just him a Make mask. him more superhero-y. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Just... But, you know, it, it didn't work. You know, sales dropped. They were, if, you, if you read some of the... Um, letters that were sent in by fans they hated it Um, and you know especially Avengers fans you know because right after this he appeared in the Avengers because they were fighting Ymir and Surtur and a lot of Avengers fans is like saying who the hell is this guy so they were also upset even Avengers fans who might not particularly have been Doctor Strange fans they were Marvel fans and suddenly this new character appeared who's supposedly Doctor Strange it's kind of like upsetting you know your uh, universe is being rocked here but um, the the mask wouldn't have been enough if he had just, you know, uh, magically conjured a mask. It wouldn't have negated the spell yeah. that um, Asmodeus cast because Asmodeus literally assumed the identity and the physicality of Stephen Strange on the earthly plane, which means that the only way that Doctor Strange could return is if he returned as someone else or someone who wasn't Stephen Strange. So he literally cast a spell, um, presumably that would transform his face into a magical, you know, um, uh, alternate version of him. And that's why, yeah, because he couldn't coexist on the earthly plane with with, uh, a double. And uh, so it's it's more than a mask. It had to be because it it literally just had to be a new face. Um, Yeah, so a very bad decision from Roy (laughs) and from... But, you know, he was sort of pushed into it. Um, Later, he redeemed himself when, when he wrote Doctor Strange The Return when he got rid of the mask once and for all. And, yeah, uh, you know, I, 
Yes, and I think the, the, the idea of trying to introduce a character who looks more like a traditional superhero in a comic that's being drawn by Gene Colan, who doesn't do traditional superhero comics, who specializes in horror, is a mm. huge mistake. Because you know, I like Gene's art in general. Yeah. He's not my favorite Doctor Strange artist, but I like his art as a whole. I really like his art on Tomb of Dracula, but he's not a superhero artist. And this is a superhero costume. So it's you, it's like you've taken you know two genres and smushed them together and a turd came out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't say anything wrong about Colin. I'm a huge Gene Colin fan. He's yeah, like, me too. He's, he's like my Kirby. But, um, you know, I agree that I don't, I never liked him drawing superheroes or, or any kind of science fiction. You remember you did that series in the 80s, Gem, Son of Saturn? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, he drew the realistic people, you know, in that series. It was truly outrageous. Uh, series. Yeah, the, the little kid Luther and that, that guy called Bouncer, he drew them very well. But when, when it came to Mars, when it came to Jim, I was like, oh, no, what, what, what did they force Gene into here? But, you know, when Gene draws Captain America, though, I'm fine. You know, that's a, a colorful character with, you know, um, he, he draws great Captain America. And, of course, Tomb of Dracula, you can't say anything wrong about that. But I love his Doctor Strange run. This issue, probably my least favorite Gene Colan Doctor Strange issue. Well, even uh, though I don't like that look, and even though I don't like the the appearance of that look, I love this issue because I love the Sons of Satanish. They are just oh, so yeah. mustache twirlingly, evilly goofy, oh. and they look like the villains from the battle from the Battle of the Planets cartoon, only only wearing red <laughs> instead of green. I, I love them. They are something about if if there's a if there's a comic book that has the supernatural in it in the 70s i guess this was technically the late 60s yeah. and it had a cult in it i'm all about it yeah well gene was yeah gene was a fan of the hammer horror films at this point in time i think i read an interview in, in back issue magazine or something um and you know the the sons of satanish and in in fact all the cults that show up in uh, tomb of dracula as well that was all because of the hammer films that he was watching at the time because cults were big you know, um, uh, in the early 70s and in, in movies and so forth, starting with Ro Rosemary's Baby, I think, in the late 80s and so forth. So, you know, they sold and, and they made movies, and that's where the Sons of Satanish came from. So I don't have anything against them. They're a great concept. It's just I think when it came to, comes to Doctor Strange wearing this mask, Gene must have thought, oh, what the hell is this? You know, I have to draw this. But at least just that's just what I would like to think he thought. But yeah, Sons of Satanish is great. Yeah, I like. I really like these guys. I like when they all their appearances. Like the panels are all kind of like weird shaped and stuff. Like I liked all that. It's not just. I mean, not not the not to it's to negatively compare it, but like the Ditko thing, it's very gridded. You know, it's just these nine panels straight across three 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 three. But here, the 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 we're coming at all these crazy angles. You know, as uh, yeah. as as Don Jr. and Eric here perform this weird satanic <laughs> ritual. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. I really, really like it, and I I am a huge fan of Gene Colan. I think his stuff looks great at a treasury size. Now that you mention it, I'm really sad we never got a Tomb of Dracula treasury. Like oh that would have been, been amazing. Oh my god! Um, but you're right. This is a weird like for Gene Colan to take on Doctor Strange right as he becomes more like a superhero just seems like a wait a minute why and obviously this didn't take off because this book was canceled like six issues later dr strange ended and by the way i didn't mention it uh, i i teased it but i didn't get into it is how dr strange managed to get up to 170 issues 
in the late 60s, and that's because they took over the numbering. Strange Tales became okay. Doctor Strange, right. uh, much like uh, Tales to Astonish became Hulk and Tales of Suspense became Captain America. That was a pretty standard thing, I guess, because postal mm-hmm. regulations were so financially onerous back then that they just changed yeah. titles. But it didn't last long. Like This was only like six more issues in this, in this look, and then the book got canceled. Yeah. It makes it hell to read on, uh, let's say for a new reader, on Marvel Unlimited, you know, uh, luckily they try their best on Marvel Unlimited to to feature, you know, if you if you're interested in a particular character, you know, you can click on Doctor Strange. They'll show you all his appearances in chronological order. But if you're just thinking Doctor Strange uh, and you 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 start reading from Doctor Strange number one, you won't know what's going on, right? Because so yeah, much yeah. Has, has come before it, you know. But uh, the collections normally do well. The masterworks and so forth, they collect everything. But I'm just thinking of new readers, you know. Right. right. Um, you know, once they renumber something, it's it's oftentimes sometimes better, you know, um, better than taking over the title and changing the name of the title. I think. Right. But you know, um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, what what the issue featured, I think it's important they had this issue in there because um, it featured uh, uh, an important part of Doctor Strange's mythology, the Book of the Vashanti. I mean, that is basically the the sort of the MacGuffin that um, you know. Uh, Asmodeus wants that. That's why he has to get rid of Doctor Strange, because then he could be the keeper of the Book of Ashanti, um, which features all Doctor Strange's spells, basically. So um, I, I don't think the book appeared in the previous stories in this Treasury edition. So I think they, they might have chosen that to show, it was, obviously it was the, show the mask. Story, but yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. It might have been in the color story, yeah. Um, but color didn't you know, even care about the book. Yeah, he couldn't use it. <laughs> he couldn't use it, no. But it's an, it's an important thing to feature, you know, the Book of the Vashanti being one of Doctor Strange's, you know, most powerful uh, totems or the most powerful magical objects that he owns. Yeah. Oh, he's oh, he's got so much cool stuff. He's like Batman. He's just, he just you know, he has yeah, so many cool... Many cool little gimmicks and gadgets and stuff, even though you would think as a magician he doesn't need it, but he really does. He does, comes with it. No wonder Mego never did a Doctor Strange doll, all the stuff oh they would God. have had to include with all oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, all right, we're going to go out on the last story, and then we're going to go out on a winner here. Uh, the, the final story is finally Shumagorath by Steve Engelhardt, Frank Brunner, and the Krusty Bunkers from Marvel Premiere number 10. <laughs> With Shuma Gorath using the Ancient One's mind as a portal or its dimension, Doctor Strange is the only force standing in the demon's way. Traveling into the Ancient One's mind and battling Shuma Gorath's defenses, Strange finally battles his way into Gorath's realm. There, Strange battles the creature, but then realizes that the only way to stop Shuma Gorath is to kill his own master. Slaying the Ancient One with a mystic bolt, the Ancient One is killed, sealing the portal for Shuma Gorath and causing the city of Ka'u to crumble. Grieving over his master's death, the Ancient One appears around him, telling Strange he is now one with the universe, and Strange will fill his position as Sorcerer Supreme. I, I you know... I just love everything about this. I, I mean, oh, yeah. look, I don't want to dismiss all the other work that a lot of other great creators have done, and there were runs for Doctor Strange after this that I really enjoyed, but I, I don't know. Coming from my, my untrained eye of Agamotto, I would say that Brunner and Engelhart are like the team for Doctor Strange. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Between I this agree and the beginning of the 1974 series, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I agree. There's never been anybody better on Doctor Strange for me. Even though Colin's my favorite artist, this team is definitely the best that Doctor Strange has ever seen. And it generated so many good ideas um, and, and so many uh, you know, good visuals. 
um, you know, these two guys during their tenure that I don't think it'll ever be eclipsed, at least not in my mind. But uh, yeah, it's a great. And, you know, this is where we get Dr. Strange venturing into the Lovecraftian field a bit oh, yeah. more, into Lovecraftian universes. Because before this issue, he had been fighting a host of H.P. Um, Lovecraft inspired entities. He had fought Dagoth, you know, which is a, a, a version of Dagon. And, uh, you know, he had uh, fought the Shambler from the stars and um, and Sligoth, <laughs> all of these names that, um, you know, these guys got from H.P. Lovecraft because they were a big fan of the of the the um, paperbacks at the time, you know, with with uh, like uh, Roy Thomas was reading a lot of Robert E. Howard. And, you know, that's where he got Conan from. And and, um, you know, lots of these guys like Engelhardt and uh, even Gardner Fox, who briefly wrote i think a few stories of dr strange before this um he uh, took the name shuma gorath from an old robert robert e howard story uh, i think it was the curse from the golden skull and um the, so it's not his original creation but it's a character robert e howard never did anything with you know it's just the name he just name dropped it because at that point in time he was corresponding with lovecraft and you know they were throwing back names uh, for the cthulhu mythos and that was one of Robert E. Howard's names he came up with, but he never did anything with that entity. So Gardner Fox sort of just sh slyly, you know, put that in, in, in one of the previous issues. And then it became this big thing with Engelhardt using it, saying that Shuma Gorath is the ultimate, he's like the Cthulhu of the Marvel Universe. You know, all these other Lovecraftian entities that Strange has been battling, they've just been servants or disciples. And um, so this, this really had that sense of, oh my goodness, the, the stakes are so high. It's not just our world, it's all worlds you know, that could that could die in the story. And so, Marvel actually so. brought that, the whole Cthulhu mythos thing in Shumagorath, they really brought that full circle in the late aughts when Abnett and Lanning were doing their whole cosmic thing with Guardians of the Galaxy and Adam Warlock and all that, and they did a storyline um, called The Realm of Kings, and they introduced a alternate universe that's been overrun by Lovecraftian gods called the Many Angled Ones, and they reveal yeah. that Shuma Gorath is one of the Many Angled Ones that has slipped into this dimension. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, when I think Many many Angled Ones, ones I always think Grant Morrison's multi-angled ones. <laughs> you yes. know, he's got them in the Doom Patrol universe and so forth. But yeah, the, this is one of them, you know, um, Shuma Gorath being, you know, um, basically a race of beings from, I think, the Cancerverse, was it Grant? They're from yep. a... Yeah, where, a universe where death, where death has died and nothing can die, so if everything is just turned into one giant cancerous growth. Yeah, exactly, oh, and geez. they they want to do the same it's, to it's, our universe. It's terrifying. Oh my god, it is, it is one of the uh, best runs of the of the of the two thousands. It really is. It's fantastic. Yeah. But um, you know, we at first when in this issue when we're introduced to Shumagorath, he's just a negative version of the ancient one. So he's just like this evil, uh, you know, avatar of the ancient one floating above his brain. And um, it turns out that, yeah, he needs to, you know, uh, find a doorway into our reality. And the doorway is the mind of the Ancient One. So at the end, when Ancient Ones pass away, and we see in this comic there's been a couple before the Ancient One. So how ancient could he really be? He must be really ancient if there were Ancient Ones before him. <laughs> but um, they, at the end of their lifespans, they become weak. And then if they are tempted to use magic um, at this, uh, during this weak state... That gives um, Shumagorath the opportunity to feed on that mm -hmm. and then literally become the ancient one, an evil version of him, and then enter our realm, our world. Now, it's never happened before, or it has happened, but, you know, God, 
um, which which really happened in a. I think it was a sorcerer called Cizaneg, right? Uh, Grant. He he was God. He trapped the ancient one um, way back when, in the distant you know dawn of time. Uh, he trapped the Shumagorath, um, or or he banished him uh, to the Cancerverse again after he tried to to. Um, uh, overstep his bounds. And then that's how, you know, he was also featured in Conan. I think in the Marvel comics of Conan, he um, somehow also briefly tried to enter a sorcerer's mind in a Conan tale. Um, so oh, could that sorcerer have been the ancient one of the Hyborian Age? We don't really know. They never really said that. But, you know, according to this, it's possible. You know, so, um, yeah, that's where basically the only way that Shumagorath can enter at this period of time. Okay. And um, luckily, and this is this features a very um, terrible moment for Strange in, in his um, in his life, I think, because he's actually forced to do something he would rather not have done in order to stop Shumagorath. He literally has to kill the Ancient One. Right. And um, and that's the uh, that's probably one of my favorite panels, other than the panel where we see Shumagorath for the first time. The oh huge, man! <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Wow. This tentacle creature with his eyeball in the center. Yeah. It's kind of like it reminds me of Starro from the Justice League, but you know, Much rather creepier. than a starfish, yeah, this is like the center of a cuttlefish or an octopus's. Is, I, you know, looking at you with all these tentacles. There's it's one horrible. panel that I really like. It's a smaller panel, but it's when Steve is kind of falling through the Ancient One's mind, and he falls past this thing that's like this stock full of eyeballs just poking <laughs> at it. And I know you like eyeballs, Herman. No, man, I hate eyeball horror. It's 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 terrible. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that's always bugged me. Any anything with an eye, ugh, man. Yeah. I would never be an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. <laughs> There's no way. But, um, yeah, this that's why Shumagorath appeals to me, you know, because for me, the reason I love horror so much is because, you know, you like to be scared. You like to be disturbed. Yeah. And you like to be something. Uh, even though it, it, the more disturbing it is, the more I want to watch it. That's just the, the the way I am. So, you know, Shumagorath does that for me. Every time I see that eye with the tentacles surrounding it, you just imagine your own eye with these tentacles coming out of your eyelid. Just look in the mirror right now and, and try to see that. It's gross. No, it's thank horrible. You. It's it's repugnant. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, Rob. So yeah, great. He's he's my favorite Doctor Strange villain, yeah. uh, Shumagorath. Yeah. There's a um, there's a Aquaman uh, backup strip in Adventure Comics. Uh, yeah. From by Mike Grell, uh, which was published, I would say, almost exactly the same time as this story, because it's like 1974. That features Aquaman running into a giant purple tentacled monster with an eyeball in the center. Huh. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I'm like, either something was in the air, or they were all reading the same thing, or that is also Shuma Gorath just appearing in a DC comic <laughs> book. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, well, I'm a, yeah, I know what you mean, Rob. I'm a big pro- proponent of this theory that sometimes you absorb things by a, a kind of intellectual osmosis. That's what happened with Man Thing and Swamp Thing. Right. Even right, though, right. you know, Conway and, um, and uh, Len Wing were roommates, you know, I'm, I'm sure they didn't discuss, okay, let's both create this character. I'm thinking it was just in the air at the time, you know. Yep. Um, they might have subconsciously seen some some words the other was writing or some images of art that was sent around. Same thing with Shumagorath. It could have been that those guys were having lunch together all the time, the DC and the Marvel guys. You know, they were literally across the street from each other back then. So, you know, something must have filtered over. It was <laughs> in whatever knows? joint they were sharing. 
<laughs> that too. I, I really, oh, yeah. I really do feel as though that uh, Engelhardt and Brunner were kind of like uh, had more than the sum of their parts kind of thing, where they oh, yeah. they managed to sort of get into a rhythm. And, and the things I think of as examples, I mean, not, not only is the artwork itself just really beautiful, and I think that Engelhardt's concepts are brought vividly to life by Brunner. But you look at the last two pages of this story, ninety-seven and ninety-eight. These are very wordy pages. I mean, they have got. Like the page ninety seven has twenty word balloons on it, and page ninety eight has even more than that. And okay. for a lot of artists, they would not be able to get all those words on. I mean, partially it's the work of the letterer as well. I don't want to discount them, but but part of it really would be an artist. A lot of artists would have a difficult time fitting in that much text and not make it look crowded or where you've you've crammed just a little face into a corner. And you've just got somebody yammering on forever and over. But Brunner managed to get gets in a lot of visual, you know, sort of uh, detail and wonder while also fitting in characters going on and on and on about stuff. I mean, this is a very wordy story, and I think that's that's the relationship. These these guys were both firing on all cylinders when they worked together, and I and I'm really thrilled that this ends the collection. I think this is a great way to end this treasury is with this really powerful yeah. story. I mean, this was the current team. I just think it's like a great capper for this book. Yeah, Bruner ma- managed to make two people standing around talking to each other look dynamic. Right. Just right, between right. body poses and the way the cape is blowing and the, the smoke. And it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, well, look at these last two pages. That, you know, It's pure genius. Like, okay, you've got Doctor Strange talking to the Ancient One. But if that's off-putting with all the words and stuff, you've got this, these visuals where the Ancient One is literally in every single panel. Something else, as a, he's, he's a part of this world. Because he says he's become one with the universe, right? So you first got Strange talking to him. He's uh, sort of like this tree-like being. He's, he's like uh, almost Swamp Thing-esque where he's this person, this face looking out of a tree, and then you've got him in the water. Then you've got him as part of this mountain, this mystical Mount Rushmore kind of figure. Then you've got him as an insect, which reminds me of the way John Totalbin used to draw, yeah. you know, uh, oh, yeah. Anton Arcane, you oh, know, yeah. when he's in those insect forms. Then you've got him in the clouds and then part of some vines, and then you've got him as the universe itself. What a great transition of panels, you know? So even if you weren't into reading all these words, you could just follow follow along and see how visually, you know, uh, distinct every panel is. So Brunner, no, a master. I, I wish he would do more stuff, really. I, I He's still around, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah so he's still doing stuff, he does, yeah. There's a lot of commissions, you know, but um, he has mentioned in interviews that if they ever want him back, but he also says that Modern Marvel, they don't really know him, you know, the editors, the guys, right, right. You know, yeah. they, they don't really know who he was and what he did. But yeah, now Modern Marvel is so range. shiny and polished, and I, I don't mean that mm. in a disparaging way. Oh. It's just it's just the aesthetic you know, turn that they've taken to kind of match the movies. He, you know, <laughs> Bruner would not fit in, but it's yeah. it's good stuff. Yeah. Well, do yourself a favor, uh, anybody listening, just Google Frank Bruner covers. Every single cover he's ever done is so jaw-droppingly amazing that, you know, he, he was, if nothing else, he was one of the greatest cover artists of the 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he does the back cover for this book, and it's a, it's a shot of Dormammu on his throne with his big skull, and we see the ghostly images of Strange and Clea. It's a it's a very nice image. Dormammu doesn't figure that bigger that big into this comic book, but it's nice that he gets uh, a, you know a shot, sort of a shout out here. It's a really again a really nice image, and you're right. These are this is just a wonderful book. And before I forget, this was I wanted you mentioned uh, the modern Marvel and the movies, and this was my idea, guys. I wanted to run it by you. Sure. All right, now. 
Yeah. We all know about the controversy that Doctor, the movie Doctor Strange engendered by casting Tilda Swinton as the ancient one. There was a lot mm-hmm. of, and even Scott Derrickson had to kind of apologize and say he didn't really think, of, you know, he didn't really fully appreciate what that was doing by casting a, an American white woman as, a, a, you know, a, 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 someone who's not that in the, the ancient one's character. Okay. Does this, and I thought, I liked her in the movie. I thought she was a, I liked Tilda Swinton. And I thought she did a great job as the ancient one. But I thought a fun way to get around this would be in the second movie, just completely recast the ancient one, and we just establish that the ancient one just looks different every time. So the ancient one is not just Tilda Swinton. In the second movie, the ancient one is whatever actor you want to cast. But you know what I mean? Like, I thought that would be a great way to get around it, would be just say, okay, well, that was one form the ancient one took back then. Now the ancient one looks like this. Yeah, why not? And that's a great idea, yeah. And, and since so much was done with Doctor Strange and the time gem at the end of, of the movie, I mean, I have a feeling a, a lot of time is going to be rewritten in the movie, you know. So, I, sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, that's a great explanation for her immortality, too. It's kind of like maybe, you know, um, uh, reincarnation. I mean, right. Comartage is all about reincarnation, you know, so the, the ancient one never really dies. Hence the fact that she or he is so ancient. And, you know, they could also uh, play with gender here, you know, like mm-hmm. it could be a man, mm-hmm. it could be a woman, but right. it's always the ancient one. It's a great idea. Yeah, I never thought about that. You know, it, it, it did offend me at first when I saw that in the movie. Not offend, that, that's a bit of a strong word. I, I was bummed out, you know, the fact that they didn't stick to, to Doctor Strange mythology uh, a little bit closer. But, you know, I, I'm being pedantic here, though. I'm, I'm used to movies changing stuff in a big way. Um, but, you know, there's some things you can change, like, like Spider-Man having organic web shooters. That's just a no-no. Yeah. Doctor Strange, the ancient one, not, you know, being like the comic book, the ancient one was kind of fine for me. You know, I, yeah. I wasn't too bummed out by that. Yeah. But she was honestly one of my favorite parts of the movie. The only thing I wish they'd done with her a little better is because Tilda Swinton is so like beautiful in an androgynous way. Yeah, she's I wish they I wish they just avoided gender pronouns with her. I wish they just referred to her as they <laughs> and just made her like this non gendered person. That would have been really, really neat. And probably more than what they're willing to do at this point in time, but I think it would have been a really neat step in uh, you know, representation too. Yeah. Well, if they had yeah. ever made it if they had made a Doctor Strange movie in the seventies, they could have gotten like David Bowie to do it or something. Oh yeah! <laughs> oh, what a good Doctor Strange he would have made. Oh man, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Whoa! Well, Doctor Strange. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna do any better than that. So let's just wrap it up here. Uh, so Doctor Strange, this Marvel Treasure Edition. I really, I mean, I, I've done episodes on some of the earlier Marvel Treasures. Did the Spider-Man one, the Fantastic Four, and Conan. But and they're all really good marvel marvel was really knocking it out of the park with these treasury editions i think they really took them i don't want to say seriously because that indicates that i think that dc didn't take them seriously and that's that's not what i'm trying to say but i think that dc's treasuries were generally a little more uh, for lack Bombastic. of a better yeah, a little a little more slapdash i hate to say that that's more insulting than i mean it to be but i just think they weren't thought of as like the perfect album of this character and marvel i think went that route they were like let's make the spider-man book the fantastic four book the hulk book and this is the doctor strange book if you were completely unfamiliar with doctor strange you would hand a kid this 
And I think you would get a full appreciation of the awesomeness of this character and the wonder of this character. I think it's really one of Marvel's best treasury uh, additions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a kid that picked this up when it was out on the shelves and then started reading the ongoing Doctor Strange at this time would have been in a huge in for a huge treat because that was that's one of my favorite runs of Doctor Strange with Silver Claw, not Silver Claw, Silver Dagger. And then, you know, where he goes into Agamotto's dimension, and then Agamotto looks like the caterpillar from from Alice in Wonderland, and everything looks like a journey cover, and it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's what the Treasury Editions were for. They were there to, uh, number one, get new readers interested in characters, and number two, to um, pander to the nostalgia factor of older readers. Because, like you said, Rob, back then you couldn't always go back to your you know, a uh, corner store or a supermarket and find old back issues, you couldn't. So, you know, older readers might have missed something. Newer readers has got this congested form of what this character was, and now they're interested in finding out what he could be. So they're buying new stuff. So it served both parties at the time, you know, and it did that so well. And as you said, Rob, probably because of the content chosen. Um, because they were very good at choosing which stories to put into these treasury editions, and it worked. And um, I think for its time, it definitely served its purpose, probably better than the DC ones did. Yeah, it's a great, it's a really, really great book. So, well, guys, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I was so excited. I mean, I mentioned this on other podcasts that we've had on the Fire and Water Network is I've seen every Marvel movie in the theater. I'm enjoying them. I feel like it's uh, just watching like a big TV series, you know, just the next mm. installment. And if, if mm. this particular movie isn't that great, I'll just wait for the next one. It'll be fine. But something about Infinity War just like flipped a switch in my brain where I became really big on wanting to go back and and revisit all the marvel stuff i saw read as a kid and 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 then uh, read a lot of the stuff that i missed cuz you know my my knowledge of dc is much more complete than it is of marvel and i have giant yeah. i have giant gaps and, and the movies just make me want to go back and so i've been enjoying all these new marvel related podcasts have been popping up and so when you guys started into the weird i was like this is perfect this will give me a perfect primer of this corner of the marvel universe that i'm not as familiar with so i love the show i'm a huge fan of it and i'm really thrilled that you both took the time to come on to the show and talk about this book with me thank you thanks rob i'm honored thank you man yeah definitely thanks for having us all right where can people find the uh, find the show on the internet uh, well we're they on can twitter google into the weird podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we're on a couple of platforms i mean they can obviously find us on on itunes at into the weird podcast and then we're also on tune in uh we're not on google play yet but we're soon to be on there and then uh on podbean and then you know we're both on twitter i'm at dark long box and, and grant I you am, are at i am grant richter yeah and then we've got a blog, which is at um, intotheweirdpodcast.blogspot.com. Grant, you, you're yes. always um, And that's just uh, kind of a summary there. of each episode of the show. Um, I am behind on it because I have a seven-year-old. But uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to get on it. <laughs> I just, had, well, I I just mean, had dental surgery, and I've got a kid. And yeah, yeah recently happens. we've been on a bit of I hate us, Rob, because um, you know it's summer vacation over here and, and over there with you guys. And I went for a bit of a tour. Uh, a trip abroad so uh, we're back and we're gonna be releasing uh, another episode soon and that will be our episode four very cool very excited um anyway guys thanks so much for doing this i appreciate it thank you everybody for listening stay tuned for some podcast promos and when we come back i'm gonna do some listener feedback hi i'm john wilson and i'm michael kaiser and we're the hosts of the podcast make ours marvel 
You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. And now we're going to do it, too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock and the Infinity Watch TV show, Make Ours Marvel. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. <laughs> now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. <laughs> Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. And now it's time for listener feedback, and this is feedback for episode 26 of Treasury Cast, which featured Sean Marrick and Jen Stansfield from the Worst Collection Ever podcast to talk about Superman versus The Flash. And we got comments on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First one is from our old pal Martin Gray. He says, fun episode, never seen this one. I was picturing it with a black cover. Maybe that was a regular-sized reprint collection. There's no way Hal isn't backing Barry. They've been friends since early in the Silver Age, regularly teaming up. Being on one side of the track or the other doesn't necessarily indicate support, does it? Joe X says, both of the originals had black backgrounds on the cover, so that's probably what you're thinking, Martin. Thank you, Joe. Ido Boznar says, I'm wondering if the side the various heroes are standing on indicates support for that guy, too, precisely because of GL then apparently rooting for Soups instead of his pal The Flash. And somehow I think Wonder Woman would probably be more on Soup's side, although I'm willing to agree with Rob, Sean, and Jen that she might not care, and is just there to have fun. Robert Markham says, how do we know some of the mobs didn't rob a few banks during this race? The more durable the glass, the more damage it does to The Flash when he hits it. It's also unlike Likely, the bulletproof glass was made out of sugar cane, like in the 1955 movie Sabrina. The disintegration pit came in handy when Reactron hit Kara with his radiation in 1984. Zoom Yukinori from our network says, According to the secret origins of the Super DC Heroes hardcover published in 1976, page 92. Quote, The question most often asked about the Flash is, can he outrun Superman? Julia Schwartz, who edits both Flash and Superman, has provided the definitive answer. For short distances, the Flash is faster. He moves at approximately 10 times the speed of light. For long 
longer stretches, a million miles, Superman's inexhaustible stamina would make him the victor. Consider the matter settled. David Gutierrez responded, The Flash does one thing, run fast, and he does it better than anyone else. Schwartz can get stuffed. Very nice, David. Uh, <laughs> Paul and KZ says, Schwartz can't even do the math correctly. It takes light six seconds to go a million miles, and he ignores the fact you can't go faster than light. Siskoid responds, I guess Karen Berger's title, best comics editor ever, is safe. Uh, Ido Boznar comes back and says, did I just say Ido and I said Edo earlier? Sorry about that, Edo. Ido. Uh, wow, another show that covers the treasure I actually had. Needless to say, I enjoyed this one even more than usual. Great discussion, everyone. The interesting thing about, for me, is that I remember the first story with Superman and Flash doing laps around the globe quite well. But even after your description in the show and a look at the image gallery, I can hardly remember any of that second comic, except that last bit when they break the fourth wall and ask readers who they think won. Heck, I even remember the bonus material better. Also, a little anecdote, which tied into some of your comments in the show. I remember sitting on the couch reading this as a kid, and my older brother, who wasn't into comics but was a bit familiar with the characters, asked me who won, and then after I told him it was a tie, saying something like, that's lame, and it should have been the Flash, since he's the guy who just runs Flash. By the way, just to address a point Rob made in his responses to the feedback of the preceding show about the bait-and-switch Superman treasury, if, back in the day, you ordered one or more of the treasuries based on house ads and comic books, as I did for the Batman C-44, and Secret Origins of Supervillains C-45 treasuries, there was no way of flipping through the book to verify its contents. I do recall seeing house ads for that Superman Bicentennial book as well. I would have been seriously upset if I had ordered a Superman book and instead got a bunch of Frontiersman stories. Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that. I never ordered uh, the treasuries that way. I wanted to, but I just, I don't know, I didn't like have the money or I didn't want to ask my parents to give me the money. So I never, I never did it that way, but you're right. You didn't get a chance to look inside the books via the house ad. So, right, if you had ordered a Superman book and got Tomahawk, I could see you'd be a little upset. Uh, Dr. Ange says, so much to love about this one. I love seeing the Flash race Superman, and I have my own head cannon for who is fastest. If it is a foot race, the Flash went hands down. He is a better runner. But if Superman can fly, he is fastest because of the velocity he can generate that way. I do love the two-parter in DC Comics Presents Numbers 1 and 2, a sort of Flash Superman race. Another thing I love is the Fortress schematics. So sad that the Atomic Cauldron isn't named, instead given the dull name of Disintegration Pit. Thanks so much for covering Heading to Worst Collection Ever podcast now. Thank you, Ange. Tell them Treasury Cast sent you. Chris Franklin, my pal, and from our very own network, says, So this one doesn't have the story from World's Finest 198-199? Huh. I always assumed that it did. I've been meaning to listen to Sean and Jen's show, and now that I have a preview, I know I will. Their banter back and forth reminds me of the other comic-talking couples I enjoy, not the least of which the one I am part of. Well, I like the other person in our combo anyway. Flash should be faster than Superman, but I don't buy Hulk beating Superman even just at strength. Chris, this friendship is at an end. Gothos Mansion says, I haven't listened to Worst Collection ever, but yes, it sounds like fun. I enjoyed Jen and John's take on this treasury. I think we've all made impulse purchases. I don't live near a comic shop, but I know there have been several occasions when I picked a title I don't normally collect because I was ordering from a seller who combined shipping and was intrigued by a cover of an issue he was selling cheaply. That is why I now have several issues of Charlton's Ghostly Haunts, which I'm sure most people wouldn't want. Rob, this is a Superman treasury that I can enjoy since it actually stars Superman. Plus, we finally get a Flash treasury. I wonder if Flash's book wasn't selling that well at the time because I can't believe DC never gave him his own treasury. The one let down with this being the only Flash treasuries, and it doesn't feature any Infantino artwork. There was the Infantino story in Best of DC Treasury, but that was it for Barry Flash and his treasuries, at least in solo adventures. Uh, that's true, Gothos. It is a shame that we never got to see Infantino's Flash work at this large size because it was such beautiful stuff, but we did at least get that two-page How to Draw the Flash by Carmen 
Infantino, so there's that. Brian Rosen says, Blue Streak? Talk about a deep dive. The cap appearance was around issue 320. Thank you, Brian. Boston Moss says, Fun show regarding GL and television. Since TV's broadcast specifically to the frequencies that match the cones in human vision, red, blue, green, broadcasting yellow should not be a problem. Until next time. I'm in Boston, dropping the science. Thank you so much. So that's going to do it for the feedback from the website again, which is you can leave comments at our, our home site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Uh, I need now, I'm going to move over to Twitter. I need to thank those who retweeted the show. It helps get the episodes noticed. So big thanks to Rolled Spine, Days of Your 66, The 108th Sage, Kyle Benningard, Big Frank B4, Ted Kilvington, Randy S0725, Black Vulcan 69, BGSU Batman, Man of Screencast, Tony Fred Fitness, Dr. Ann 70, BTB Blog, 22 Ring, Sonny S. Gill 1981, CKL, Council of Geeks, Once Upon a Geek, Firestorm Fan, Seven Sajak, Jen Stansfield, Don Pip Irolango, sorry about that, Comics in the Golden Age, Robert Magaha 55, and Classic JLA. So again, thanks everybody for that. I really appreciate when you retweet the show when it comes out on Twitter. Uh, it really does help. And finally, before we sign off, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. I noticed this over on Facebook, and I didn't jot down what page it was on. I think it was the fan page for Back Issue Magazine, of which I am proud to be a part. And this was a Answer Man column that uh, was screenshotted by Ken Hommel, and he caught this. And I, I don't know, I, I used to read the Answer Man columns religiously, and I still do now when I dig out old comics, but somehow I missed this one. So someone writes in and asks Bob Rosakis, uh, any further word on plans for another DC Marvel team-up? And he responds, yes, a contract has been signed for one year over the next four years. Wow. The first will be a new Superman-Spider-Man team-up by Marv Wolfman and John Buscema. Plans call for Wonder Woman and Incredible Hulk to join forces in 1980. Now, if you read that, the way it's written, it makes it sound like those are two separate books. Of course, later on, when Marvel Treasure Number 28 would come out and it would be the second Superman-Spider-Man team-up, Hulk and Wonder Woman were folded into that story. But if you read this, it really does sound like Wonder Woman and Hulk was going to be its own Treasury edition. I have never seen this answer from an Answer Man column, so good job on Ken Hommel for flagging it. That's a darn shame. It sounds like that there's going to be four treasuries over the next four years and obviously that never happened, but that's a damn shame that Wonder Woman and Hulk didn't get their own. I guess maybe the Hulk was eventually turned into Batman and Hulk, but uh, geez, that would have been really cool to see a Wonder Woman Hulk treasury. Um, I never did understand why we didn't get Batman and Captain America. That seemed like a more natural team-up, but anyway... Uh, what could have been? Uh, anyway, thanks so much for Ken Hommel for catching that. That's really fantastic. I love reading about uh, the sort of treasuries that never were. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Treasury Cast. Big, big thanks to Herman Lowe and Grant Richter for coming on the show to talk about the Doctor Strange treasury. That was really, really fun. I love their Into the Weird show, and I'm really happy they could come on and talk about the Doctor Strange book. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until the next episode, go big or go home. Tomorrow night, reach into the unknown with Doctor Strange. Do you believe in evil, Doctor? You're telling me you're a sorcerer. Don't defy me, Stephen, or I'll take my pleasure from you in another way. John Mills is the power of good. Jessica Walter is the power of evil. And mankind's fate hangs in the balance. Peter Hooten stars in Doctor Strange. Tomorrow night at 8, 7 Central and Mountain Time.